Good evening and welcome to our third Oxford Political Thought Seminar for this term. This is coming to you from St. Anthony's College, Oxford, specifically at the Middle East Centre under the Contemporary Islamic Studies Programme. Uh, my name is Usama Al-Azami and I am the co-convener along with my colleague Faisal Devji. Professor Faisal Devji will be joining in just a short while and it really gives me immense pleasure to welcome you to a Oxford Political Thought Seminar discussion on the notion of friendship. And we're delighted to be able to welcome two scholars from often situated in different parts of the world. But right now, Nuhal Shah is uh, joining us from London, where she is associated with the Institute for Ismaili Studies uh, and also spends time at the American University of Sharjah. And uh, from across the Atlantic uh, at Frank Franklin and Marshall College, we have Sher Ali Tarin. And as I have mentioned, both of them will be addressing the theme of friendship. Specifically, Nuha Al-Shar will be talking about uh, friendship in Islamic ethical political thought, foundations and modern implications. And I'll start by giving a brief introduction to yourself, Nuha, before I'll ask you to take things away. Nuha is uh, an associate professor uh, at the American University of Sharjah and, uh, as already mentioned, a scholar based at the Institute of Ismaili Studies in London as well. She completed her PhD at the University of Cambridge and has uh, taught and engaged in research in a number of institutions from Cambridge to the School of Oriental and African Studies at, uh, in London um, to the International Studies Centre at Queen's University in Canada. Noha has also taught at the Institute for Ismaili Studies in London, continues to do so, and her main interests are in Islamic ethical and political thought and classical Arabic literature, uh, as well as ethics in the Quran and the reception of the Quran in classical literary studies. I think most notably for this particular talk, from your numerous publications, and you have quite a collection, is your 2015 book, uh, uh, Ethics in Islam, Friendship in Political Thought, in the political thought of At-Tawhidi and his contemporaries, published by Routledge. So with that brief introduction, I'd like to welcome you to uh, give your presentation. Thank you. Thank you so much, Osama, and thank you, Faisal, for inviting me in, uh, to present in this uh, series. Uh, Sher Ali, it's very nice uh, to meet you, and I look forward to uh, connecting with you and engaging with your work as we go forward. I'll start my presentation. In her analysis on, of a friendship uh, and social networks in post-revolutionary uh, French society, Sarah Horwitz reveals the extent to which politics and the friendship interacted in times of shifting political alliances. Her study also explains how French society responded uh, uh, to and recovered from the upheaval of the French Revolution including the sense of distrust and the division of society along ideological lines. Friendship is presented as one bond that could restore trust, connection, and cohesion among people. Trust and cohesion were necessary for the functioning of the parliamentary life. Therefore, many politicians turned to friends for help. In my talk, I will present a similar story about friendship in this context, but from pre-modern Islamic perspective. My aim is to introduce the fourth, 10th uh, century Muslim thinker at Tawhidi, Abu Hayyan Tawhidi, and his concept of sadaqa, friendship, into the broader development of friendship and its importance in the context of politics of his time and beyond. 
I will begin by defining some of the points uh, that shaped my thinking while exploring the subject of friendship in political thought in the 10th century Islamic context. My starting point was challenging the received and hegemonic limits of secular approach on Islamic political thought. Modern concepts such as humanism and political philosophy as applied to authors like Tawhidi and their texts, in my opinion, were not faithful to the social and intellectual context in which these thoughts were produced. These approaches impose certain assumed dichotomies, including the religious secular divide, which overlook the encyclopedic system of knowledge that shaped their thought and the interdisciplinary nature of their work where religious, philosophical, and literary elements are intertwined, as I will show in the course of this talk. Another area of concern at, at the time was the contentious debate in earlier scholarship over whether the introduction of political ethical concepts in Islamic thought was the product of uh, the Greek or Arabic Renaissance as suggested by scholars such as Mez and Gibb and Joel Kramer, or largely an indigenous product of Muslim thinker in response to the adverse effects of political and social changes and the increasing polarization of Islamic cultures and thought. This reminds me also of what Matthew Arnold, uh, the great Victorian social and literary critique, who offers a valuable context in which to interpret much pre-modern Islamic philosophy. In 1869, he wrote Hebraism and Hellenism. Between these two points, the influence moves our world. So it was important to rethink these categories as a way of helping me understand the Islamic past and why certain concepts were proposed and applied in their own social and historical contexts. Thus, rather than applying pre-set categories to these thinkers and their concepts, or assuming that they are reproduction of previous ones, I analyzed the complexity of the system of knowledge that shaped the formation of key moral concepts and terms, including friendship, that At-Tawhidi and his contemporaries employed in their historical context. And I also tried to identify the moral conceptual changes that At-Tawhidi introduced to the concept of friendship and the ways in which they were applied and their significance in relation to the unique historical contexts of Buyid society. Furthermore, in order to make sense of what authors like At-Tawhidi were doing, I looked at At-Tawhidi's discourse on friendship in relation or in the intellectual contexts of his contemporaries who also proposed similar concepts and vocabulary like the Brethren of Purity who spoke about the concept of brotherhood, Khuwa, or like Yahya bin Adi who spoke about also about the concept of insania, humanity, and also Ms. Kawaihi, Ahmad bin Kawaihi, who also spoke about the idea, and the brethren also spoke about the idea of love and the idea of friendship and justice, etc. So it was important to contextualize the whole 
to study or to understand the whole intellectual milieu of the time and to appreciate what the fourth 10th century author wanted to say through their introduction of concepts such as friendship, brotherhood, and love, as I just mentioned, or whatever types of knowledge they wanted to communicate. We should judge them by considering their perspectives and the range of issues that they aimed to address within the context of their society, which was at the time burdened by substantial social strife, political struggle and shifting political alliances, as well as division and heated debate on the nature and form of knowledge that could save society. Given the encyclopedic nature of writing in the 4th, 10th century, At-Tawhidi, Ahmad ibn Sikawaihi, and the Brethren of Purity produced expositions of ideas to reflect on the nature of political matters and the morality of their society and current belief, beliefs and practices in various places of their works rather than in one specific study devoted to the subject. For example, Tawhidi discusses a number of intellectual themes and political ideas concerning the tensions between different Buyid Vazirs, namely Ibn Sa'dan, Ibn Abbad, as well as how best to rule the community. These ideas are scattered in his books and especially found in his books, Al-Imta'a wal Mu'anasa, the book of the, uh, of the light and conviviality, Akhlaq al-Wazirayn, the moral of the two Vazirs, as well as As-Sadaqa wal-Sadiq, friendship and the friend, which is a lengthy epistle on the theme of a friendship, which At-Tawhidi composed at the request of the Buyid Vazir of Baghdad, Ibn Sa'dan, who seemed to have heard about At-Tawhidi's discourse on friendship from the famous Zayd bin Rifa'a, who is supposed to be a member of their Brethren of Purity. This epistle was based on the lectures that At-Tawhidi seems to have delivered on friendship and related matters in the philosophical circles of Baghdad at the end of 370-980, which included members of the uh, school of the Christian philosopher Yahya bin Adi and the Muslim philosopher Abu Sulaiman Sajistani. So in order to set his epistle within the wider genre of intellectual inquiry and to offer Ibn Sa'dan guidance at Tawhidi drew upon previous ideas on friendship, be they religious or philosophical. At Tawhidi and his contemporaries seem to be more, when we look at these ideas, they seem to be more concerned with matters actually related to everyday experience of buoyed social and political situations, rather than with a coherent analysis of the theory of friendship or polity. It is noteworthy that these scholars shared a concern for collective harmonious living, which could explain their interest in an inclusive approach to knowledge. These scholars thought that people need to be reminded of the actions and moral uh, conduct which enable people to live together. They propose the questions, including why do human need to live in a social framework? And what forms of affiliations or sociability should exist in order for people to exist harmoniously and maintain salvation and the good life? To explain humanity's need for social cooperation, these philosophers 
uh, obviously brought forward several arguments for the need of ta'awun or cooperation. One of these arguments is that, is that they said that the inability of humans to secure all their needs alone is what necessitates friendship and cooperation. And they cite Aristotle's concept of man as a social animal, al-insan al-madani or al-haywan madani. The inability also to reach moral perfection or to purify their soul alone. And therefore, concepts like brotherhood, humanity, friendship were seen as both to achieve virtue, happiness, and thus paradigm to cultivate morality, social behaviors, and cooperation. In his epistle, Al-Sadaqa was Sadiq, the friendship and the friend, Al-Tawhidi, from the outset, he introduces friendship as the highest moral value that links religion, reason, morals in theory and practice. It is also useful to note that Ibn Sa'dan, who requested the composition of, of the epistle, was faced by external and internal threats, as well as shifting political alliances at the time. In this context, the subject of friendship was appealing, especially the unavoidable friendship with an enemy, which was a major theme running through the epistle of Tawhidi, the friendship with an enemy, and in order to help keep danger under control. And this theme was a very important theme in the epistle itself. And in circumstances of conspiracy and shifting political alliances, the practice of befriending an enemy built on self-interest and was common actually in the Buyid period. I'm gonna share with you my PowerPoint because I would like you to read one of the citations. Let me share. Okay. This is the definition. I would like you to look at very this beautiful definition of a friendship. So Tawhidi starts the epistle by introducing this very unique friendship between a philosopher and the judge, and the religious judge. And so he, he introduces this friendship between the philosopher Ibn uh, Abu Sulaiman al-Sajistani and Ibn Sayyar. I'll let you read it. So we can see from this uh, quotation that Tawhidi seems to offer the example of the true friendship between a Sajistani, who is a master of logic and the Greek philosophy, and the judge Ibn Sayyar, who is a learned man in religious law, as a model of effective polity, since he is actually addressing a vizier, that replaces the pattern of competing political military commanders or kinship, the person-centered approach to, to ruling, we can also see how Tawhidi's attempt to seek patronage and to promote the role of intellectuals in society. He also seems to be offering a theory and practice of a friendship based on religion and reason to reform the political domain. These last points highlight the transcendent character of Tawhidi's disinterest concept of friendship between the philosopher and the judge or a, a ruler, since it exceeds the limitations of specific categories and combines religion and philosophy in an ideal political framework. 
at the time of Tawhidi, these two disciplines were seen as separate and as two disciplines that cannot be combined. And it was a very sort of a clever attempt of Tawhidi to bring them together through this framework of friendship. Tawhidi seems to be establishing here a balance between the role of knowledge by introducing the scholar Sajistani and law in reforming and organizing society. It also seems that the friendship between the man of knowledge and the man of religion and authority remains essential in a Tawhidi's theory of the connection between knowledge and politics. Thus, the inescapable relationship between the Tawhidi's concept of friendship and politics can be seen also in the role of human companionship as a necessary means for ruling well. By promoting the example of the ruler friend and the need for a ruler to turn to friends for advice, he offers insights concerning the bond of political affiliations and addresses the importance of adopting friendship as a political practice, especially in times of trouble and shifting political alliances, which takes us to, in some ways, to the work of Sarah Howards that I started with. Tawhidi's views can also be related to the wider project to persuade people in authority of the indispensability of a wise and just ruler. And to a certain extent, I can see a reference to the Platonic notion of a philosopher king and the, uh, as the best model for ruling. Another point that is noteworthy here is if you can look at my the, the, the words that I uh, that I uh, highlighted in red, you can see that here. So Tawhidi is offering like four key elements to his concept of sadaqa, which is soul, intellect, nature, and morals. And these were uh, very important philosophical concepts that were discussed greatly in, in the schools of Abu Sulaiman Sajistani, Ibn Adi, and the Brethren of Purity. So when we look at these four key components of Sadaqa, we can see Tawhid's attempts to introduce Sadaqa and to make it imply a pedagogical conception to, to secure a person's perfection and happiness, since it consists of the soul that determines a person's moral equality and control and has a control over the body and direct it, uh, directs it to goodness. So we can see also reason, nature, and morals. Friendship can be seen here then as a framework, as both to moral refinement in order to address social and political challenges in Buyid society and to produce alternative moral and intellectual responses to social disintegration and to the decline in, in morality, which were characteristic of Buyid society at the time. I would like you now to look at the other quotation, which is, who can be a friend or who can enter? This was another important point in Tawhidi's episode, is like the theme of what is a friend? What should a friend do? Who can be a friend or who cannot be a friend? So you can see here a very interesting and lengthy quote. He says that, and these questions, they are both normative and action-guiding ethical questions. And these questions also define the nature of this virtue, friendship. 
which Tawhidi place, places at the heart of an alternative moral order. And if you look at the quote, you can see that kings, according to Tawhidi, cannot be friends, cannot enter the realm of, uh, of friendship. And he excludes them from friendship because of their uh, oppression, passion, and because of their unjust character at times and aggressive character. So you can see here also an attempt to link the concept of friendship with the concept of justice, which was also extremely important in Tawhidi's conceptualization of his framework. So we can see here also that there are other people excluded from uh, being able to be friends, like the, um, the lowly in society, because of their also lowly characters and lack of ambition, etc. And I think something that is uh, of interest to us as scholars when he say also, when writers, Al-Kutab, and who, uh, they, they were the academic group of the time, he says, when writers, Al-Kutab, and the people of knowledge have withdrawn themselves from competition, jealousy, hypocrisy, and duplicity, sometimes friendship with them may, be sound, may be become sound and they may show fidelity, though that is scarce. And this scarcity is due to a scarcity in its origins. I'm afraid it's a bit of a gloomy uh, image, but again, what he is trying to say is like, uh, trying to say that everything that distracts, everything that distracts social harmony cannot be included in friendship, cannot uh, be included in what he sees or what he imagines as the framework of friendship. So through the framework of who can be included in friendship and who should be excluded, Tawhidi links the virtue of friendship to justice. And in his view, for friendship to exist, a ruler should maintain justice and should protect people. While the lack of friendship brings a deteriorating political, economic, and social climate, this defines a moral form of ruling as that which preserves the community and establishes social harmony, reason, and action in opposition to passion and religious zeal. I'll just very quickly just mention that they also a very important distinction in Tawheed is a framework of friendship is the distinction between friendship and other forms of emotions. So for him, friendship is higher than other forms of familial love because it is suited for the path of reason. And also, I would like very briefly to mention that although a Tawhidi, uh, like there is a difference between a Tawhidi's concept of friendship and that of the Aristotelian philia. Tawhidi doesn't accept, and his, uh, um, as well as his teachers, Sajistani, they both don't accept the friendship that is based on passion and pleasure. They only accept disinterested friendship. So we can see that, that he does not take over the Aristotelian understanding uh, of philia, but he actually excludes certain elements that he doesn't agree with. And he brings other elements from other religious sources and citing uh, uh, poets like Al-Hallaj, etc., in order to offer a more harmonious form of friendship that is 
able to bring to to enable people not just to exist but actually to exist in a harmonious way in society i'll stop here and i'm sorry that i exceeded thank you so much that was really a wonderful sort of overview and in many respects a comparative overview of tohidi's interpretation or conception of the notion of friendship across uh, sort of his own context but also looking at the in some respects the philosophical uh, genealogy of his ideas because it, it's fascinating to think about a, a figure who is in Baghdad of course in some respects the center of the world at the time but the center of the Muslim world certainly who is grappling with these divergent traditions but there's also uh, uh, the anecdote that you mentioned about the jurist and the I guess the philosopher and the jurist when those minds are meeting that's two very noteworthy competitors to the intellectual space as well and so i i'm sure in the course of the discussion and i'd like to welcome Faisal because he was able to join midstream um uh we'll be able to inquire into those uh aspects of your uh fascinating talk so thank you thank very you much Sam. really appreciate it Sam. thank you and uh you've done all the hard work so <laughs> uh, <laughs> thank you so much and I also want to remind um, audience members, if you'd like to put in any questions to any of our panelists, um, please feel free to um, write those in the Q&A and we will take them up uh, in the Q&A portion. Uh, so let me first introduce you, Sherali. So Sherali is currently Associate Professor of Religious Studies and Department Chair of Religious Studies at Franklin and Marshall College. He's been there uh, since 2012 and he's re he received his PhD in 2012 from Duke University, uh, studying under Ibrahim Musa, and uh, researches Muslim intellectual traditions and debates in early, modern, and modern South Asia. His uh, fantastic and remarkably long book, Defending Muhammad in Modernity, is published by University of Notre Dame Press uh, in 2020, and received the American Institute for Pakistan Studies 2020 Book Prize, and was selected as a finalist in the 2021 American Academy of Religion Book Award. So um, you're now, my understanding, is working uh, more squarely in a second book project. On a second book project, um, you have a, uh, I think, a working title, Perilous Intimacies, Debate, Debating Hindu-Muslim Friendship After Empire. And so very much you know, squarely, both of your books, are squ uh, in, in your case, uh, Sherali, your, your planned second book, are squarely in the uh, realm of this week's theme. So I, I really look forward to your presentation, which is entitled, I'll just read the title once, uh, Debating Muslim Hindu Friendship After Empire. Uh, and I'll leave it to you now. Thank you. Uh, thank you so much uh, to Faisal and Osama for this invitation. It really is an honor uh, to be here. Uh, thank you so much, Noha, for your really wonderful talk. I learned so much from it. Uh, really an honor to be here. Uh, so I just prepared some comments to stay within my uh, 20 minutes. And yeah, my comments uh, today come from my second book, which I've just finished and is forthcoming next October from Columbia University Press. As Osama mentioned, it's titled uh, Perilous Intimacies, Debating Hindu-Muslim Friendship After Empire. Uh, the six chapters of this book look at varied discursive and political theaters of intra-Muslim scholarly contestations, primarily focusing on the thought of prominent early modern and modern South Asian ulama or traditionally trained Muslim scholars on the boundaries of Hindu-Muslim friendship from the late 18th to the mid 20th century. Uh, since the theme of this seminar is friendship and politics, this is what I will focus on as well, uh, which also forms an important element of the conceptual constitution of this book. Uh, 
And in this regard, I'm interested in exploring ways in which friendship, especially inter-religious friendship, emerges as a promise as well as a peril for different stripes of South Asian ulama in modern South Asia. So this idea of friendship as a promise and a peril will be key to my comments today. But before I give you a couple of examples to elaborate on this point, let me offer a very quick theoretical comparison between discourses on friendship and politics in Western philosophical and Islamic intellectual thought, uh, broadly uh, speaking. Contemporary philosopher Alexander Nehemas, in a probing survey of the idea of friendship in Western philosophical thought, argued that from Aristotle onwards, friendship has represented what he called a double face that promises the highest bonds of virtue, while also threatening to morally corrupt someone blind, blindingly bound to a harmful friend. Friendship, in other words, is both a promise as well as a peril. On a somewhat similar note, friendship, as Jacques Derrida in his classic The Politics of Friendship had elaborated, is intimately entwined with enmity. While describing German theorist and lawyer Karl Schmitt's thought, Derrida offered a set of brief and brilliant comments that capture a key conceptual note of what I'm after here. Once the enemy had disappeared, Derrida writes, the friend would disappear at once. The possibility, the meaning and phenomenon of friendship would never appear unless the figure of the enemy had already called upon them up in advance, had indeed put to them the question or the objection of the friend, a wounding question, a question of wound, end of quote. Derrida famously continued with this pithily evocative sentence, no friend without the possible wound. Friendship in Derrida's words is only possible al alongside the wound of enmity. Friendship requires enmity and its wound as a condition of its possibility. No friendship without enmity, no friend without the possible wound. In another essay, cryptically but productively titled Hospitality, Hospitality, Derrida showed that the ideas of hospitality and hostility share a troubling common origin between hostess as host and hostess as enemy. Hospitality, the linchpin of friendship, is always vulnerable to be parasitized by its opposite, hostility, the undesirable guest which it harbors as the self-contradiction in its own body. Back to friendship, though. What then do I mean by the category of friendship? I want to experiment by approaching friendship, and here I will share screen so it's easier for you to follow my comments, by approaching friendship as a a relationship or encounter of intimacy, collaboration, cooperation, or hospitality with the other, that while affording particular benefits, opportunities, and forms of power and pleasure, also renders untenable exclusive claims to the purity and sovereign ownership of the self. Friendship is an invitation that cannot be embraced without foregoing the claim to sovereign mastery. Friendship frustrates sovereignty and is a reminder of its impossibility. Friendship, especially interreligious friendship, while holding the promise of engaging and accessing the other, also invites peril by signaling the inextricable entanglement of the self with the contingencies of the other. Friendship offers the possibility of enrichment and expansion, but also carries the threat of influence, corruption, or even erasure. It is this underlying tension and friction between friendship and sovereignty that most interests me. How does the moment of encounter between religious identity and difference present itself as both a promise as well as a threat? 
then what sorts of intra-religious negotiations, in this case, intra-Muslim negotiations and forms of and modes of politics does that encounter foster and foment? This is the foundational question that I'm interested in and want to open up for discussion. Now, the Muslim discursive category corresponding uh, to the idea of friendship, most frequently invoked by the South Asian ulama actors I focused on in my book, was not so much that of sadaqa that Noha talked about, but is that of muwalat, an Arabic term that carries the dual meaning of a relationship of friendship, intimacy, and loyalty, or that of clientage and patronage, as, as in that between a state and its subjects. It etymologically shares the roots waliya of mystically infused terms like the friend of God or wali, usually meaning a Sufi master, and wilaya or sainthood. Now, curiously, wilaya and its Siamese twin walaya can also mean sovereignty, sovereign power, and sovereign authority, reinforcing the conceptual and linguistic intimacy between friendship and sovereignty. For instance, the 11th century Quran exegete slash theologian and author of the famous dictionary of Quranic terms, Al-Mufradat fi Gharib al-Quran, Ar-Raghib al-Isfahani, died 1108, defined al-Walaya as the authority of command, tawalli al-Amr, while capturing the semantic frame of the roots, waliya, through the following description, and I quote him here, intimacy of space, lineage, religion, friendship, loyalty, and belief, end of quote. A wali, plural awliya, carries the meaning of a friend and intimate, as in friend of God or Sufi saint, but also that of a protector, master, or person with power and authority who can lay claim to the guardianship or walaya slash wilaya of a community. For instance, God describes himself as wali or guardian of the faithful in verse 2, 257 of the Quran that partly reads, God is the guardian of those who established faith. Now, the expert of Ibn Arabi, Michel Chodkowicz, has succinctly described the etymological duality of this category when he writes, and I'm quoting him here, the primary meaning of waliya is proximity or contiguity, and this in turn gives rise to two further meanings. One of these is to be a friend, and the other is to direct, to govern, to take in charge. Thus, the wali, properly speaking, is the friend, he who is close. But as the famous 13th century lexicographer Ibn Manzur, died 1311, emphasizes in the Lisanul Arab, the speech of Arabs, the wali is also the nasir, he who assists, and the mudabbir, he who disposes. So the point is this. In this formulation, friendship is fraught with power. If cultivated in a salutary fashion, friendship promises the gift of sovereign power and authority pastoral or territorial, extended by the most absolute of all sovereigns, the divine sovereign. But friendship with an undesirable other that portends perilous and harmful consequences eviscerates the integrity of the self and by extension that of the community, unleashing spiritual and political ruin. Friendship is thus a prized promise as well as a potentially dire peril. Moreover, and this is the crucial point, the idea of friendship or muwalat in connected categories like al-wala, wilaya, and walaya in Muslim intellectual thought include but go much beyond the commonplace notion of congeniality or good relations that one associates with the English word friendship today. Rather, muwalat encompasses and brings together theological, political, and everyday intimacies. It is a category that connects a political theology eager to guard Muslim sovereign power with the desired choreography of the everyday anxiously invested 
in preserving Muslim distinction over its various others. How is this normative mandate and architecture of interreligious friendship negotiated and debated in a context marked by the aftermath of Muslim political sovereignty? In other words, how is the promise and peril of interreligious friendship and intimacy, especially Hindu-Muslim friendship and intimacy, debated after Muslim imperial sovereignty in contexts like modern South Asia defined by the absence of Muslim political sovereignty? These questions are at the heart of my interest. Let me give two uh, uh, interconnected examples for purposes of illustration. Now, one of the main arguments I make in my book is that from the late 18th century onwards, though increasingly a colonized minority, the interpretive canvas that informed South Asian Muslim scholarly engagements with the question of Islam and difference were often deeply anchored in a pre-modern context of Muslim imperial sovereignty. This did not mean, of course, that South Asian Muslim scholars were somehow stuck in the pre-modern world. To the exact contrary, the persistence of an imperial Muslim political theology was intimately bound to the conditions, expectations, and pressures of colonial modernity. For a deracinated colonized minority, this moment was saturated with the anxiety of recovering the distant yet urgently attractive fantasy of sovereign power. And with the impossibility of political sovereignty, and this is the crucial point for me, with the impossibility of political sovereignty, this desire for sovereign power was increasingly exercised in the realm of everyday ritual life through the drive to preserve and maintain markers of Muslim distinction, what are called Sha'a'ere-Islam or Sha'a'ere-Islam, the singular, meaning ritual practices and affective registers of everyday life that distinguish religious identity and, and difference in the public sphere. How is this so? Let me give just two brief examples and then I will end. Now, among the most fascinating moments of intra-Muslim contest on the boundaries of Hindu-Muslim relations concerned the context of the Khilafat movement uh, in the early 20th century that, of course, Professor Devji has written extensively and brilliantly about and from whose work I have benefited tremendously from. So one of the Khilafat movement's most famous protagonists, the renowned Muslim scholar Abul Kalam Azad, died in 1958, who was among Gandhi's major allies and later also a key intellectual architect of the Indian constitution, had called on Indian Muslims to avidly collaborate with Gandhi's and the Indian National Congress's non-cooperation movement by severing all civic ties with the colonial state. In a detailed Urdu text peppered with Arabic references, poignantly titled The Arabian Peninsula, Jazirat al-Arab, composed in 1920, Azad drew on two intensely contested verses in the Quran, uh, verses 8 and 9 of chapter 60, Al-Mumtahana, relevant parts of which read as follows. Uh, God does not forbid you from showing kindness to those unbelievers who do not fight you on account of your faith and neither drive you forth from your homes. God only forbids you to turn in friendship towards those unbelievers who do fight against you because of your faith and drive you forth from your homes or aid others in driving you forth, end of quote. Now, in the context of colonial India, Azad argued, Hindus represented the first category of non-Muslims mentioned in these verses, since they had never attacked Muslim countries, fought them in religion, or been the cause of the expulsion of Muslims from their lands. In stark contrast, the British, with their designs to colonize Arabia and destroy the Ottoman Caliphate, exemplified non-Muslims of the second variety, those who fought Muslims in religion and expelled them from their homes. 
Now, Azad's program of marrying inter-religious hospitality with anti-colonial activism met stiff resistance, however. For instance, the towering late 19th, early 20th century traditionalist scholar Ahmad Raza Khan, founder of the Barelvi School in South Asia, was furious with Azad and his Khilafat uh, movement colleagues and their push for Hindu-Muslim friendship and collaboration. He counter-argued that to begin, the Ottoman state cannot be understood as a legitimate caliphate since it lacked prophetic lineage, or more specifically, the lineage of the Prophet's uh, tribe, uh, the Quraysh. But most critically and most relevant to the argument I've been trying to develop here, Khan disagreed vehemently with what he called and saw as the encouragement of Hindu-Muslim intimacy and friendship in the public sphere. Not only was Azad wrong in characterizing Hindus as a community that had never attacked Muslims, for they certainly had done so during multiple episodes of communal violence, but most significantly, legitimating Hindu-Muslim friendship left vulnerable to erasure public markers of Muslim distinction, Sha'air al-Islam, Sha'air al-Islam in Urdu, Persian. Khan was especially livid, for instance, when leaders of the Khilafat movement once invited Gandhi to a mosque on a certain Friday to address the congregants. Handing over to a Hindu leader the elevated and coveted side of the pulpit exemplified an attitude of disregard for markers of Muslim distinction that, in the absence of political sovereignty, indexed sovereign power and the promise of preserving religious identity against the threat of competing others. So in contrast to Azad, who had connected interreligious friendship with a political horizon that exceeded the nation state in the figure of the caliphate, Khan located Muslim sovereign power squarely in the realm of ritual practice and the choreography of the everyday. For the latter, it was not the resurrection of any notion of a Muslim state, caliphal or otherwise, but the cultivation of embodied markers of Muslim distinction in the public sphere that enshrined the imperial fantasy of sovereignty in the ruins of empire. So the point being that for both these thinkers, friendship, its promise in the case of Azad, or its peril in the case of Khan, was saturated with power. But how they imagined the interaction between friendship, power, and politics was diametrically opposed. Example two, and then I will close. Another issue of contention that best crystallized this point was that of cow sacrifice, arguably the most vexatious subject of dispute among the Indian Muslim scholarly elite in the early 20th century, exactly one century ago, uh, for that matter. Uh, recently, Hindu nationalist discourses and major majoritarian violence uh, directed against minorities like Muslims and Dalits as part of the cow protection movement have attracted tremendous scholarly and journalistic attention as well as alarm. But investing affective and political attachments in the body of the cow as an index and marker of religious purity and superiority is not a solely Hindu phenomenon. The cow has represented a site of tremendous anxiety and opportunity for competing groups of prominent South Asian Muslim scholars as well for at least a century. For instance, the leaders of the Khilafat movement urged abstention from cow sacrifice as a gesture of interreligious hospitality towards the Hindu community. This gesture of abeyance, they argued, was crucial for forging a robust political alliance with the Hindus against the British. Now, their argument was based not on some abstract appeal to pluralism, but on a specific reading of the Islamic legal tradition, drawing on the observation that cow sacrifice is not an obligatory wajib, but only a permissible mubah practice in Islamic law. Hence, refraining from it posed no normative pitfalls 
Indian Muslims can easily substitute cows with goat and sheep for animal sacrifice in both everyday life and on devotional occasions like Eid. This proposal, however, left opposing scholars like Ahmad Raza Khan aghast. Again, of particular interest is the reasoning that went into his protest. Abstaining from cow sacrifice, a ritual known to be a distinguishing marker of Muslim identity in colonial India, under the coercion or pressure of Hindus, amounted to the shame and humiliation of Muslims, an outcome that was antipodal to the underlying motif of the Sharia, establishing Muslim dominance over non-Muslims. Here I must avert a potential misreading. While articulating and presuming an imperial Muslim political theology, it is not as if Ahmad Raza Khan was some unhinged exclusivist oblivious to the reality of British colonial power either. Exactly to the contrary, he was not only keenly aware of British colonial power, but also closely attuned to the opportunities and benefits afforded by that power. So for instance, while arguing for the preservation of Muslim markers of distinction, Sha'ire Islam, Khan frequently invoked the colonial promise of tolerance and policy of tolerance towards individual religious communities and of the commitment of the colonial state to ensuring the freedom of religion. Pressuring Indian Muslims to abstain from cow sacrifice, he often proclaimed, and here I'm quoting him, represented an abomination that the colonial authorities should never allow. Similarly, on the other hand, it is not as if scholars attached to the Khilafat movement, who argued for Hindu-Muslim collaboration and friendship, were some open-ended pluralists, unaware of or, un or uninterested in the normative potency of traditionalist hermeneutical logics anchored in the assumption and context of Muslim empire. Take, for instance, the position of arguably their most intellectually formidable protagonist, Malvi Abdul Bari, died 1926, who was associated with the famous Farangi Mahal School of Muslim traditionalism in South Asia, known for its emphasis on rationalist disciplines like logic, mantik, and philosophies. Even while urging abstinence from cow sacrifice, Abdul Bari was at pains to emphasize that such abstention should not issue forth under the pressure or coercion of any non-Muslim community. Why? Because suppressing a public marker of Muslims' distinction involuntarily under any pressure or coercion contravened the imperial political theology informing the normative ethos and parameters of the Sharia. But no normative landmines imploded if for purposes of sacrifice, one replaced cows with other animals like sheep, camels, or goats of one's own volition. The most interesting thing here was that Bari anchored his whole case for refraining from cow sacrifice on the very category of public markers of Muslim distinction that the opponents of this view, like Ahmad Raza Khan had mobilized to argue for the necessity of cow sacrifice in colonial India. How? By claiming that the caliphate represented a far more critical and monumental marker of Muslim distinction than cow sacrifice. As he pithily and cuttingly put it, and I quote him here, what is the cow when put next to the caliphate? Both these examples I have briefly described highlight a vexing conundrum on which I will end. That conundrum is this. How should one imagine and engage the legacy of dominant pre-modern normative attitudes 
on Muslim non-Muslim relations and friendship in a world in which the very political context of Muslim imperial sovereignty that informed those attitudes is no longer available. But paradoxically, what I've tried to show today is that despite or perhaps because of the absence of Muslim political sovereignty at stake and work in these intra-Muslim contestations over Hindu-Muslim friendship were precisely the logics and promise of an imperial Muslim political theology. I'll end there. Thank you for your patience. Thank you so much, uh, Sharali. And, uh, you know, like uh, Noha, this has really been a vista into a series of debates on the theme of today's uh, seminar that, um, I mean, it really is a, a, a fascinating insight of goings on in the uh, Indian subcontinent in the last 150 years or so in ways that really illuminate, I think, the, as you put it, the promise and the perils of friendship, as it were. And I uh, I want to open up the floor for uh, any questions. I just want to remind um, sort of audience members, if you have any queries, please feel free to ask. Faisal, with yourself here, I may actually uh, start off by asking if you have any comments that you want to put to either Noha or Sharali on their wonderful presentations. Uh, yeah, thanks very much. And thank you uh, both Noha and Sharali. Um, I'm sorry I missed a bit of Noha's talk because I was detained in London by a panel that started late and ended late. But I made it for the substance of it and a really wonderful quality uh, panel, I thought both presentations, so I'm really thrilled. Noha, let me start with you and then I'll move to you, Shani. I love this idea of sadaqa as defining friendship because of course, uh, you know, in its form as gift, you know, it's, it's voluntary, it's discretionary, and yet it's also necessary at the same time. And you know, I, I thought I'd ask you about the relationship between what is discretionary and voluntarily and voluntarily given on the one hand and the necessity that it implies on the other because friendship as, as you laid out, it's also a necessity for society. And this seems to be mirrored in what you're saying about the figure of the king. So the king cannot be a friend, and yet he must exist in order for friendship to exist. And the king guarantees the possibility of friendship, but is removed from it in some ways at the same time. And I wanted to ask you whether this removal is also one of the things it does is gesture towards the king's sovereignty, you know, something that Shahali was talking about in a different time and place, and that the king really needs to be an external force as a sovereign figure. So he, he's inside and out at the same time. But doesn't the king also, perhaps not in Tawhidi, or need friends? Because as, as far as I can tell, in the kind of medieval tradition of political theory, say in the mirrors of princes literature, it's not something I know anything about in my research, so I'm just parroting what I've read. The figure of the boon companion, the king's friends, mm -hmm. the prince's friends are very, very important. And I was just wondering whether these friends are also, as it were, friends of a different variety than the kind of friendship you were talking about, Noah, because their friendship with the king is premised upon something other First, of course, it's a problem in its own right. How can you be a friend of the kings if you're unequal? And it's a problem for the king because of the king's possible loss of his own sovereignty by depending on the love of or for uh, his friends. 
But it just made me think of when you think about Ghazali writing about the king and friendship, whether that kind of friendship that he's talking about is necessarily outside the normative conception of virtue that you described with Tawhidi, you know, that um, because after all, it requires war, wine drinking, women, you know, all of the things which are not part of. So are there two categories of friendship here? What's, uh, and you may have talked about it before I arrived. Um, could you just say some more about it and then I'll come to you, Sure. Uh, uh, thank you so much for this uh, fantastic question. And uh, this is exactly what uh, I was, or what Tawhidi tried to distinguish between what he, what he calls as real friendship or disinterested friendship and companionship. And then, um, so, uh, or uh, uh, being acqu uh, acquaintance. So what he was uh, trying to do is like, uh, obviously there was an implicit, uh, there was an explicit criticism to the institution of kinship that, that became a new institution uh, during the Buyid period. Um, the Buyid period, like it, uh, it, we, we saw a change in the concept of polity, like that's a change of the structure of polity. Uh, in the Buyid period, the Abbasid Caliphate uh, became weakened, and the Buyid, which uh, and who, who were uh, Shia minority, they came from the Dailam area in Iran, and they ruled the Islamic Caliphate. But these Buyid uh, rulers, they couldn't claim uh, their kinship on the basis of prophetic succession. And they were actually also not very welcomed by the Sunni majority of society. So they were seen in somewhat as outsiders to the rest of the uh, population or to the rest of uh, society in Baghdad. In addition to that, they were not interested themselves, the kinship, the king, or the, institute, the institution of kinship them, uh, in itself, Kings were not interested in making a friendship with the rest of society. They wanted to be always that outsider institution that can control and manipulate all the other groups and all the other competing groups in society. So what was that Tawhidi trying to say is like these kings were only interested in their own self-interest in, the, in, in, wealth, in compiling wealth, in um, their own desires, in um, um, uh, uh, like um, aggression, uh, power, etc. So for that, they are not suitable to be friends. No one can be friends with them because the one important element in his understanding of friendship, in addition to soul, intellect, nature, and moral, is a trust. You cannot trust them. You can't have an, a relationship of intimacy because it's you should be able to, to reveal your inner self with your friend. And this is missing uh, from this friendship with, with, these, um, with these kings. Obviously, they can have companions, they can have acquaintances, but they, can't, they, are, they, they, are not, they cannot be qualified or morally elevated to, be, to reach the rank of friendship that he was talking about. But he actually, um, was also promoting his own, his own intellectual worth, meaning he was trying to argue for the place of intellectuals in society. So what he was trying to say that if these kings like the Vizier Ibn Sa'dan, 
where to become interested in knowledge and where to embrace the people of knowledge and ask for their advice and welcome them and, and select the right companion, they will be able to purify themselves through knowledge and they will get the right advice and then they become a ruler friend. So there is a possibility, there is a road there. Oh, that's very yes, there is a possibility, yeah. but this possibility is, is somewhat confined uh, or conditioned uh, um, on their um, willingness to control their passion and to control their uh, self-interest and to, 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 uh, yeah, to control their self-interest and passion. Thanks very much. So uh, turning now to Shanali, you know, again, the discussion of sovereignty in that very rich paper, um, I, you know, I was wondering, you know, for what you were saying, um, I mean, you're describing the socialization of sovereignty in the absence of empire. Uh, but do you think something else is happening there as well? In addition to being socialized, it is, as it were, Islamized in a certain way. So, you know, it might have been part of the language of Siasa earlier, and now it is being made to fit in the language of Sharia. Um, I'm not drawing an absolute distinction between those two categories, but I think it's important nevertheless, uh, because of the authorities who are making these pronouncements, uh, their authority is not based on anything that a prince's authority would be based on. Uh, so, right. you know, I wonder if that is also happening. Uh, and if that is the case, then, um, uh, you know, you have a new imperium of the faith being created. So um, if you could elaborate on that, I, on the issue of, um, you know, when you, uh, the Khilafat, I just found it fascinating that the standard Urdu translation of non-cooperation is Tarke Mawalat, as you know, uh, and yet it's used completely differently from the English non-cooperation or any other Indian term, because cooperation is certainly not friendship. Uh, and when Gandhi talks about non-cooperation, he thinks that to non-cooperate with the British actually involves the greatest amount of friendship for the British. That in, in refusing cooperation with them, you are performing a sacrifice for yourself, i.e. Right. you lose you lose out. And in doing so, uh, you offer the hand of friendship to your opponent. Uh, so um, you give them the opportunity to, to claim friendship, uh, the friendship that you're offering. So in a way, the refusal to cooperate and friendship go together for Gandhi. And I suppose you can read that as a, another way in which sovereignty gets uh, to be linked and delinked uh, with friendship. And yet Azad, who's so close to Gandhi, uses Takamu Walat in a quite, in your, yeah. you know, in your telling of it, in a completely different way, in which this issue of refusal to cooperate leading to friendship does not seem to be yeah. uh, that available. And I, I wonder why, why that might be the case, you know, yeah. on, um, on the Caliph and the cow, of course, there's that, uh, Gandhi too has that wonderful um, saying where he says the, the Caliph is the Muslim, so the Caliph is the Muslim cow. So he actually makes a comparison between the Khalifa and the cow. They sound sort of alike because they begin with the same kind of sound. 
in English anyway. Uh, and uh, uh, he's not suggesting that they're the same thing or that the equivalents that can be exchanged, like commodities exchanged, right. you, know, you know, but precisely because they're unlike each other and unequal, they can enter into a relationship. Uh, and that one can be literally exchanged for the other. So again, what strikes me is that Ahmed Reza Khan and others whom you have been fighting either refuse to look at that kind of reasoning or it, it seems not to uh, have any weight on them. Uh, so that they're reading a kind of, say, Gandhi, who's the most prominent advocate for this kind of thing. Right. Um, right. They're reading him in terms of their own categories. but in such a way as not to read him at all. And it's that refusal that I, is yeah. it a misunderstanding on both sides for Azad who should have known better and did know better and for Azad's own opponents, there's a kind of you know unwillingness or an inability or a refusal uh, to actually accept the terms of the argument. Right. Even though they are constantly arguing with each other in the most sophisticated and nuanced way, as you described. Yeah, yeah. They're both very, very fascinating. Thank you so much for that, Tansil. Um, yeah, on the first point, uh, you know, one of the things that I've been interested in is precisely this question of these seemingly illiberal actors like Ahmad Raza Khan and other sort of scholars contemporaneous to him uh, who might be in opposing camps, like the pioneers of the Dioban movement, who are so invested in these questions of the everyday. Why does everyday life become so charged um, by the late 19th century in these questions of the celebration of the prophet's birthday or the question of um, you know um, distributing food on the third day of the deceased and these questions of uh, intimacies between different religions in the public sphere and this whole question of preserving the markers of muslim distinction in everyday life to not see this kind of preoccupation as apolitical or a retreat to the private sphere or a retreat from politics but rather as deeply political but rather exactly as you put it, compensating for that lost political sovereignty precisely in a different domain of politics. Uh, that is in some ways Islamizing sovereignty is a nice way of putting it in that precisely the everyday becomes a sphere saturated with the promise of sovereign power uh, in the absence of political sovereignty. Uh, and as you have pointed out in your work on the Khilafat movement that for many of the, for the Khilafat movement protagonists, you know, it, this was not a movement to live under the Ottoman Caliphate. I think that's a very interesting point, that this was not a movement that we want to live under the Ottoman Caliphate, but rather it represented a form of politics that exceeds the nation state and that also exceeds the actual Ottoman Caliphate itself. So these are horizons of politics that that uh, emerge in the in 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 uh, after uh, political sovereignty. Uh, and they're competing articulations of sovereignty, but nonetheless both grappling with the aftermath of sovereign power. On the question, the second question that you that you raise is very interesting on, on Mu'alat and how it is collapsed with friendship in the thought of someone like Azad and others. The interesting thing here is that on this particular point, someone like Gandhi and someone like Ahmad Raza Khan are actually quite in agreement in that someone like Ahmad Raza Khan also precisely the problem that he has is with this point of um, collapsing mu'alat with uh, friendship with the British. So the point that he makes is that we ought to make a distinction between friendship or substantive friendship and mere transactional relations. 
And you ought to continue mere transactional relations with the British, taking funding for our schools and all those kinds of you know, things that ought to, through which we ought to maintain our everyday life and our existence as a functioning community of Muslims. But we don't need to engage in substantive friendship with them. So when you collapse muwalat with substantive friendship and say tarke muwalat, what you're basically is doing, what basically you're doing is you're inviting catastrophe and socioeconomic hardship on your own self, which will eventually benefit, quote unquote, the Hindu community and Gandhi. So this basically, he argues, is a catastrophic ruse that has been planted by Gandhi in the minds of people like Azad and others. So he makes an interesting point that we should, in fact, engage in a practice of masked friendship a masked friendship with the British in that you're not actually showing substantive friendship and maintain only mere transactional relations, but mask a certain kind of friendship that is not apparent, but is but but you keep it masked in some ways, in close to the idea of a certain kind of a Sunni taqiyya of friendship with the British. Uh, so, but this is precisely the kind of collapse of this category with substantive friendship that is also bothering someone like Ahmad Azhar uh, And this kind of slipperiness of these categories is precisely what makes them uh, ambiguous and productive, but also threatening uh, to the, these different actors. Uh, but I just, the last point I want to make is that even within the Khilafat movement, I think, you know, as you have also explored, there is this interesting shades of nuance between a figure like Azad and a figure like Ab Abdul Bari, in that a figure like Abdul Bari is much more attentive to addressing the kind of normative sensibilities of a Hanafi traditionalist and to make sure that those sensibilities are not treaded on and are, are, are addressed in a more uh, uh, deliberate fashion. Whereas someone like Azad, although he quotes Ghazali and all those kinds of pre-Muslim figures, he can take certain leaps and certain kinds of uh, uh, licenses. Uh, for example, on the whole question of, does the Caliph need to be of a Quraysh lineage? He is very open by saying, no, he does not need to be because historical precedent has shown that many of the Caliphs have not had that lineage. And this is something that does not have historical precedent. Uh, that is something that Bari would not argue. So within the Khilafat movement, there is interesting temperaments uh, that we find those uh, sort of hermeneutical nuances that also need to be uh, um, kept in mind. I'll, I'll pause. I just, uh, just in ending, um comment that, you know, Ahmad Reza Khan's argument in many ways gets to be the Muslim League's argument right. uh, in the Pakistan movement, uh, with, which views the Khilafat movement as precisely a ruse uh, to impoverish Muslims. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, they quit the assembly, they quit colleges and schools, they quit their law practices, and they move down in the world. And then they become slaves of the Hindus, you know, so that, you know, so it, with the Muslim League, it's not about the Shia and Islam or whatever, but right, uh, right. You know, yeah. it, it's about a conspiracy uh, exactly. in which they lose they lose power. Right, exactly. Faisal, should I take the opportunity to ask her? Uh, so I, I had my own sort of questions. Now we, we have about 15 minutes left, so unfortunately we can't address uh, all of our curiosity, but I'm sure these conversations will keep on going. Um, Sort of well beyond this evening. I, I wanted to start with a question for Nuha, um, which I, uh, you know, I, I uh, found an amusing sort of moment in your lecture where you were talking about friendship with enemies, right? And it, mm. it made me go back to um, a line in The Godfather, which, <laughs> which is attributed to, I, I think this is typically um, a statement of Don Corleone or something like this, you know, keep your uh, friends close and your enemies closer. Mm. And I was kind of wondering, like, what does friendship with enemies mean in this sort of a context in particular? Um, uh, because uh, I assume it's um, 
in the context you were speaking about to do with recognizing that you need to have relations with people with you need to maintain diplom diplomatic relations perhaps with people who are potential threats to you ultimately um but i it also kind of harkened back um in my mind obviously tawhidi is far earlier than a figure like machiavelli mm -hmm. but to the kind of i guess uh the renaissance post-renaissance mirror for princes literature because uh at tawhidi i kind of associate with the sort of person who is hanging out with the uh, court and in a sense providing as well as uh, entertaining discourse uh, advice of a sort for the court so that was one dimension of the question and the other dimension uh, is is there any conception in Tawhidi that um, there can be friendship with members of the opposite sex uh, and whether there could be friendship with, is one's relation with one's spouse too hierarchical in that context, with one's wife in particular, to be a relationship of friendship? Um, was, so it's in a sense three questions. But <laughs> Okay, well thank you for uh, these uh, very interesting questions. I'm going to start with the last question actually, which I also find um, uh, yeah, very, very creative. Um, I think uh, he doesn't address a friendship between a man and a woman in the sense that you're talking about, but he actually talks about relationship. He talks about romantic love. And he says that, uh, and he talks about it in, uh, uh, in a quote that I don't remember uh, exactly, but I remember the context. He talks about a Bedouin and a Bedouin love for a woman and that uh, for his wife and this love for his wife should, um, if, if, there, if there is a, if, if you are faced with a choice between, between choosing romantic love, your love for a wife and your friend, you have to choose your friend because your relationship with your wife is based on passion. And uh, while the relationship with, with the friend is actually, based on uh, reason and based on choice. So you have made the choice and you have duties towards your friends and you have to maintain a friendship. Therefore, you have to choose uh, your friend over your wife. <laughs> very counter to our <laughs> exactly and that is actually it's, it's a very interesting view because it reminds me of a story in Kalila Wadimna. Uh, by Ibn al-Muqaffa, if you know the story, the, uh, the, uh, the, the monkey and the turtle. The story? Okay, so it's a very interesting story that there is a monkey that who used to live in, a, in, a, in isolated land and like in an oasis and uh, a turtle, um, he swam and the, the monkey, every time he would shake the tree and some kind of root, will fall down and will and the turtle will take the fruit and will eat. So the turtle assumed that actually the monkey is doing that on purpose to, to feed him. So he felt like the, the monkey was trying to, to have a friendship with the turtle. And then the turtle developed a very strong friendship with the monkey. And to the extent this distracted the monkey from his wife and the wife became very jealous because of the absence, the absence of the husband who started to spend a lot of time with the monkey. And then she shared her, um, her anxiety about this relationship between the turtle and the monkey. And then the neighbor advised the wife, to, the, the turtle wife, to pretend that she is sick and she will only be cured if she eats a monkey's heart. 
and then the turtle was in dilemma. I mean, what, what, how, what does he, what would he do? He's gonna lose his wife, and is he gonna deceive his friends? So, what's the right thing to do? But then, after after a period of contemplation, the turtle goes back to the monkey, and then he tries to deceive the monkey and to tell him that, okay, I want to take you to visit my house. And then the monkey jumped on the turtle's back and then the turtle was going back uh, home with the monkey. And the idea was to kill the monkey and to make the wife eat the heart. But in the middle of the journey, the turtle became a bit sad. How would he kill his friend? So he started like uh, in a way to, um, in order to repent and to ask the monkey for forgiveness, he told the story to the monkey that what is going to happen. Then the monkey was extremely clever. And he said, you know, we monkeys, when we leave our hand, we don't take our heart with us. We actually leave it there. <laughs> so, so the turtle took the monkey back. And this is the, the bottom of the story is like, it's a dilemma. Like what, what would you choose? But then someone like with Tawhidi would, would choose a friend over a, over a romantic love. To your second question, if I have time to answer, I'm sorry I spent time with this story, but uh, it's just like if you can just remind me again with the. No, I was just thinking in terms of like you know the the notion of keeping one's enemies close. What does that mean? Yes. It sort of struck me as maybe somewhat Machiavellian, as it were. Yes, it was actually a very. Uh, this notion was extremely important in the constant in the context of Buyid courts because Buyid society was. Buyid governance was divided across courts in different areas, like in Rai, Shiraz, Baghdad. So there were different Buyid viziers in these courts, and they were competing relationships. And there was a particular wazir, wazir called the Sahib ibn Abbad. He was uh, in, uh, in constant competition with Ibn Sa'dan, and Ibn Sa'dan always wanted to know about what's going on at the court of Ibn Abbad. And apparently, Tawhidi uh, knew the court of Ibn Sa'dan inside out. And therefore, Ibn Sa'dad, through Tawhidi, wanted to know about the court of Ibn Abbad and wanted to uh, send uh, correspondence. He was always sending correspondence to the court of Ibn Abbad in an attempt to keep a kind of diplomatic relationship and friendship with him in order to understand what is the next move by Ibn Abbad, etc. So these kind of uh, friendship were necessary at the time. Absolutely, and and I think um, yeah, that would that would make a lot of sense to contemporary sensibilities as well. I, just very briefly, um, Shirley, this idea of you know Muslims cannot be humiliated into adopting the abandonment of cow sacrifice is really fascinating, because on what basis have Muslims effectively abandoned slavery in our times? And I wonder if people like you know Ahmad Raza Khan, if they were alive today, would be saying that well, actually. <laughs> we need to re-establish slavery, right? And um, so, yeah, I, I kind of wonder, that's more or less my question uh, to yourself. Like, how do you think there's an analogy or am I missing something here in the way that they would have seen this? What's the slavery connection you're drawing? Sorry. I... So in the sense that, you know, if we're saying, okay, cow, slavery, cow sacrifice is not a wajib, it's mubah in the sharia, so you can abandon that. So that is a very common argument against slavery. It's a common argument against, for example, um, uh, multiple marriage for men. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there are a whole host of areas where you can say, well, this isn't an obligation technically, so we can abandon it because it's better for us in this context. Right. 
So the argument there is that in this particular context, it's a marker of Muslim distinction, that cow sacrifice distinguishes Muslims from non-Muslims. So if you were to abandon it under the coercion or the pressure of a non-Muslim community, that would mean the diminution. That would mean undermining your own position in relation to the other. So interestingly, even someone like Abdul Bari of the Khilafat movement, he in fact argued that if Hindus insist that Muslims uh, in, uh, abandon uh, cow sacrifice, at that point, in fact, it will become obligatory for Muslims to engage in cow sacrifice. So yeah. in fact, he tells the, you know, his uh, compatriots in the Indian National Congress also that don't insist on this point. Because the more you insist, the more I will also become legally obligated to tell uh, my community that you must undertake this practice because in terms of a classical legal paradigm, uh, dropping the insistence will allow me then to tell them that, okay, it's at least on everyday matters, at, just, at least on Eve, you can at least drop cow sacrifice and I will not engage in cow sacrifice either on Eve at, uh, at least. Uh, so in order to, for this to happen, both sides have to temper their insistence on this matter, uh, but even someone like Abdul Bari is very insistent that the 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 uh, that this should not come from the pressure or the insistence of a non-Muslim community, or else a marker of Muslim distinction will be erased. So that is the kind of what I'm interested in is how the kind of power uh, relations and the assumptions of power dynamics coming from a pre-modern Muslim imperial framework of law is informing both groups of scholars. And hence, this intra-Muslim debate is not really about for or against pluralism or for or against inclusivism and exclusivism, but rather it's really a negotiation of a pre-modern framework of law in radically new set of conditions and how that negotiation leads to new forms of politics. And that's how I'm connecting friendship, politics, and Just to and sort of add a just to tag on to this, I mean, what's yeah. interesting is that some of the Ottoman opponents to European pressure to emancipate yeah. slaves, right? this was their argument as well, that interesting. these yeah. Western powers are insisting and, in some respects, undermining our sovereignty, mm -hmm. and that makes it all the more important for us to maintain this practice. Right. So right. uh, I guess uh, yeah. it's, not, it's not a salient issue in South Asia, right? slavery in particular, but in other parts of the world, it may well be. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. That's interesting. Thank you so much to both of you to thank you, you to both of you giving uh, uh, you know so much of your time and, and really sharing your the latest yeah. research you've been uh, engaged in uh, and and it's really been eye opening on so many levels. Uh, I wish I always feel this way that I wish we had so much more time to engage in these conversations, but uh, I I hope that this encourages our listeners and uh, future sort of viewers of the podcast to get their hands on your books at least and uh, you know benefit from from that experience i before we conclude um, i just wanted to mention that we do have our final session for this term of the oxford political thought seminar on wednesday the 30th of november and this session will be on secularity and will be joined by armando salvatore and winfred Fowler sullivan uh, both dealing with the theme of uh, secularity so we'd really welcome you all to join at that point. But until then, we look forward to seeing you. I want to thank again, Sher Ali, yourself. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Saman. Thank you, Faisal, for inviting us. Thank you, Faisal, Saman. True pleasure. Thank you so much. Very nice meeting you, Sher Ali. Wonderful meeting you as well. Hope our paths cross soon. Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Good evening to everyone.